Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been in a series for several months now, a beautiful mess. We're jumping to chapter 15, and I'm going to be reading this morning verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Paul, for reading scripture for us this morning. Uh, Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community Church. And Again, we're so glad that you're with us this morning. And as we prepare to uh, look at this passage that uh, Paul read for us, I'd love to begin and pray and ask for uh, God's help, the help of the Spirit, uh, as we um, look through this text for his to help us understand uh, all that he uh, has revealed here in this passage to us. And Father in heaven, you, um, you are so good. That you, when you created this world, when we as your people rebelled against you, that you didn't leave it by itself um, to crash and burn, but that you set in plan, uh, a motion, a plan to redeem and rescue and restore. 
And at the center of that is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so now I pray, uh, as we look at this passage where Paul teaches us about the resurrection, um, that we, each one of us, would know deeply the pivotal moment in history that this is. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what are we, what are we really doing here this morning? I mean, of course, uh, you know, we, we're here, it's Easter Sunday, uh, we, all, we all got dressed up, we came to church, and uh, I'm sure lots of us are, are looking forward to a big uh, delicious uh, brunch or lunch after this. Um, Rachel makes this amazing uh, dish that we call resurrection potatoes, um, which we're going to be looking forward to eating uh, later on today. Um, we, we call them that, I mean, it's amazing, it's potatoes and cheese and butter and sour cream, I don't even know, it's amazing. Um, but we call them resurrection potatoes for two reasons. One, uh, both because I truly believe they are a, a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth, a little bit come back to us. And secondly, it just wouldn't be right to eat them unless you actually had hope of, of resurrection um, because of the amount of, of fat and calories that are in there. So you really need a sound hope of, of resurrection to feel good about eating them. Um, but is there really anything more than that happening this morning? More than just tradition, uh, more than just sort of Midwestern religious sentimentality followed by good Midwestern family-style eating. And, and I especially get this. If you're here this morning and you're, just, you're with your family or friend and you don't really consider yourself a, a church person, um, I mean, if, if that's you, Easter is actually sort of a bummer of a holiday, isn't it? I mean, you, ha- you have to come to church and, and you don't even get a day off of work extra. I mean, at least at Christmas, you get presents and a, and a few days off of work. Easter, uh, you have to go to church and, uh, and you don't even get an extra day uh, off from work. But is there more to this holiday than, than just a day you have to go to church and don't get an extra day off of work? Does this re- day really make any difference? Because when it comes to the claim that someone rose from the dead and then stayed alive never to die again, it's pretty easy to be skeptical, isn't it? Because if there's one thing that we know from, from the countless experiences of people all over the world, literally every day, it's that dead people stay dead. And this, is, this is a universal human experience, that, that when people die, they stay dead. And, and even beyond that, our world today is it's just an easy place to be skeptical. And this is true even for Christians. It's certainly true for, for me. I mean, my life is given to someone that I've never seen. I pray to someone, I have conversations with someone that, that I've never actually had an audible sort of reply in the same way that I talk to another person or, or talk to someone on the phone. Charles Taylor, who wrote a, kind of this magisterial work called A Secular Age, points out that we in the West have, have been through a transition, that our culture has shifted. And 400 years ago, Westerners lived in a society where belief in God was unchallenged and indeed unproblematic. And then he says, but where we've shifted to now, we live in a culture where belief in God is understood to be one option among many others. And frequently, it's not the easiest to embrace. 
author Paul Ellie, whose work uh, is a scholar who examines the way that religious belief informs the experience of American people at crucial moments in their lives, he, he observes this. He says, we are all skeptics now, believer and unbeliever alike. There is no one true faith evident at all times and places. Every religion is one among many. I think this is so powerful what he says here. He says, the clear lines of any orthodoxy are made crooked by our experience and are complicated by our lives. Believer and unbeliever are in the same predicament, thrown back onto themselves in complex circumstances, looking for a sign. And for some of us here this morning, that skepticism is based on on deep intellectual questions about the coherence of the gospel message and and the authority of the Bible and and those kinds of things. And maybe you have deep questions about faith in general or Christianity in particular. But I suspect for many more of us this morning, the reason that we wrestle with, with doubt and skepticism is for much more personal reasons. For, for much more painful reasons. Because this, this was the year that your grandma passed away. This was the year that you lost your brother. This is the year that your mom or dad died or your brother died. This was the year when you had another miscarriage. And this is the year that your, your marriage ended. And in these moments of pain and doubt, we wonder, is this, is this really true? Or, or maybe on the other hand, this has been one of the best years of your life. I mean, you finally got the dream job or the house that you always longed for or the child that you've prayed for is finally born. And yet, even in those moments of celebration and happiness, you find yourself haunted Haunted by a nagging sense that those things weren't as satisfying as you thought they were going to be. Or haunted by the fear that now I have them, when are they going to be taken away? It all seems so fragile. You see, for all of us, there is a fear that that good or bad, hard or easy, that our lives will end up being of no consequence that we will be forgotten, or if anything is remembered about us, it will be our failures rather than anything good that we did. But what Paul is going to show us this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, the verses that we heard read, he's going to show us that if the bodily resurrection of Jesus, if that's really true, if that actually happened 2,000 years ago, it means that my death is not the end. It means that my fears are not in control, that they're not in charge. And then it means that my failures are not the last word. If Jesus has actually risen from the dead bodily, if what we see recorded in the scriptures aren't just myths, but this events that actually happened in history, it means death is not the end, fear is not in charge, and failure is not the last word. And to a world where it's easy, it's so easy to be skeptical where it's so easy to deny that Jesus was raised from the dead or or to daily not experience God in our lives, Paul says one thing. He says, if Jesus lives, then so can you. If he lives, then so can I. And, And not just someday in heaven when we die, but right now, experience life to the full.
So the first thing that we see is that the resurrection of Jesus means that my death, that your death, the death of those we love doesn't have to be the end. Death is a monster. And we feel it every time we go to a funeral, don't we? I remember the, the first funeral that I have really clearly in my mind was when my grandma passed away. I was a, a teenager and um, I remember sort of uh, being at the funeral and I was a pallbearer and helping to carry her casket. And, and growing up, she lived just about 10 minutes away from our house. And so she was such a part of our lives. And I remember driving uh, in the back seat of my parents' car, riding home and just sort of experiencing the, the deafening silence of her absence, and she had suffered from Alzheimer's, and so even the last years of her life had, had been diminished, had been ravaged by this disease, and yet there was still this, this finality of the moment of her being gone. And then there was my friend's dad who died of ALS before he got to see his daughters grow up, and then a college dorm mate who, right after he graduated, was killed in a, in a farming accident, leaving behind a, a young wife and child. And, you, we all have these stories, don't we? Death is a monster. And, and it's not something we have to teach either, is it? I mean, kids know that, don't they? I mean, as much as we try to shield kids and pro- kind of protect them from the, the, the brutal loss of death, they, they know. And when a pet dies, even when they just lose that beloved stuffed animal, they experience that ache. And how do you explain that in our experience? How do you explain the ache you feel when someone close to you dies? Is it just love lost? I mean, sure, that's part of it. Is this just sort of the circle of life, something that we all experience? You know, all good things must come to an end. As a pastor, I'm regularly walking closely with those who are grieving death. And I will tell you that those explanations of, well, it's just the circle of life, it's just a natural part of the cycle, those explanations aren't good enough. Because it doesn't explain the pain, the suffering. In every case, it is clear that this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not natural. It's not something we just need to accept and and move on, just a part of life. You see, the center of the Christian story is simple. There was a man named Jesus who was put to death on a cross, was laid in a tomb, and came out three days later full of life. And that that changes everything. Listen again to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters of the gospel, I preached to you when you receive, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, this is the, the heart of Christianity, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then they had appeared to all these witnesses. Now when you hear this, this claim that Paul's making that, that Jesus actually died, was buried, and has been raised to new life, uh, there, there, one of two things can, can come to your mind probably there. One possibility is that you've heard that so much 
that it's just kind of become white noise in your life. You've grown up in church and you've come to church for a long time and Jesus raised from the dead, of course, every Easter we celebrate that. And it, it almost has lost its meaning to you. Or on the other hand, you think, well, like that, that categorically can't be true because dead people don't do that. <laughs> dead people stay dead. So by definition, this can't be true. You've never seen it. And, and just for the record, neither have I. I've never seen anyone rise from the dead. I've um, been to a lot of hospital rooms, a lot of funerals, never seen anyone rise from the dead. But what is so striking about verses 5 through 9 here, if you keep on reading in the passage, is that Paul points out some people actually have seen it. That there are people in, in history who have seen someone raised from the dead. There was a large group of people who were convinced that Jesus was two things, that he was God and that he died and rose again from the dead. Now, I know for us in 2015 in the West, it's easy to sort of have the assumption that people in the past, and religious people in particular, were sort of easily duped. Well, yeah, maybe 2,000 years ago, they believed that people came back from the dead. But, you know, we're, we have science now. We know that doesn't happen. But, but here's the thing. It doesn't take science to tell you that dead people stay dead. Everyone knows that, even 2,000 years ago. They, they weren't under any illusions that, that dead people didn't stay dead. And yet, you have these people claiming that that's exactly what they saw. And not only that, Jewish people in particular, not only the, the first people that encountered Jesus as Jewish people, not only did they believe that he was raised from the dead, but they worshipped him as God. And this is really key because Jewish people, if there's one thing that they got straight after all of their captivity and oppression, one thing that they got really clear was that there's one God, Yahweh. There's one true God, and he's not a person who you see walking around. And yet, after the resurrection of Jesus, you have people who are so deeply steeped in that belief who are now worshiping a person, the human Jesus, as God. And also, it's interesting to look at who Paul lists in this verse, who actually claimed to see Jesus as, who, as one risen from the dead. The first one that he lists that I think is really interesting is James, who was Jesus' half-brother. So James grew up with Jesus. They, they grew up together. James grew up in the shadow of Jesus, right? I mean, what's it like to have Jesus as a brother? And I just want to ask one simple question of you. What would it take for you to believe that your brother or sister was God. I mean, I have two sisters. They're amazing. I love them. I'm not even close to thinking that they're God or in danger of worshiping them as God. And yet James, who grew up with Jesus, who the Gospels clearly even say during Jesus' ministry thought he was crazy, didn't believe in him, now is falling down and worshiping as God. What happens to affect that kind of change? What would have to happen for you to worship your brother as God. Second, I mean, the one writing this, Paul, and he says it right here, I mean, if anyone was unlikely to believe, it's, it's Paul. He was a Jewish rabbi. He was steeped in the Jewish tradition, and, and he was actually persecuting the church, trying to destroy it. And yet now he's in a place where he's pleading with others to become Christians and follow Jesus. What happened to affect that change? 
resurrection. Jesus having died on the cross and then come out of the tomb alive. You see, Christianity is saying that ache you feel at a funeral, the ache that you inevitably feel when someone close to you dies, that longing that this shouldn't have ended this way. Christianity says that, that's right, that feeling that this is not the way it ought to be, that that's right on. It shouldn't end this way. But apart from Jesus, that is how it ends. And Paul, in this text, he's, he's brutally honest with us. This is really, there, there are two options on the table. That either death will take away everything, all meaning we have or could have had, or Jesus changed everything and death isn't the end any longer. And Tolstoy, the Russian author, understood deeply this first option. He wrote, my question that which at the age of 50 brought me on the verge of suicide was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. This was the question, he says, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my life? Why should I love? Why should I wish for anything or do anything? He said, it can also be expressed thus. If there is any meaning in my life, is there any meaning in my life that will, that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? That's a fundamental question. Is there any meaning in my life, in your life, that the inevitable death awaiting us does not destroy? After I read that quote this week, I thought, Tolstoy would have loved Death Cab for Cutie, wouldn't he? I mean, if you know, this is, he would have loved him. Um, And Paul actually, he agrees with Tolstoy. Because if you look at verses 14 and 19 in the text here, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If in Christ we have hope only for this life, if death is the end, then, then we of all people, Paul says, who believe that we're most to be pitied. But in fact, Paul continues in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. And this means that there is meaning in life that suffering and death can never take away. Christ is undoing the story of death. Jesus is our first fruits, Paul says, and this is an agricultural metaphor, the the first sample of the crop. It indicates the nature, the quality of the rest that is to come. Jesus is our forerunner. He's the first taste. We will overcome death like he did. We will receive new physical bodies that are never again subject to weakness, illness, aging, or death like he did. And look, I get it. That's an outrageous claim. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I mean, that's an outrageous claim. No other religion says anything close to it. But for that very reason, it's the sort of claim that you you can't ignore. Let me see if I can explain that a little bit. So imagine it's kind of, it's tax time. So imagine uh, you get a letter from uh, the IRS in the mail and you open it up and it says you owe $100,000 in back taxes. Some of you are saying, Bill, I haven't even made $100,000 in my life. (laughs) 
But because of the magnitude of the claim, you have to check it out. You don't just throw that away. You see, there's no possible way that could be right, but the magnitude of the claim says, I've got to at least check it out. Or, or let's say you, you get a, a letter from a, a lawyer. And, and it's not some, you know, it's not an email from a prince in Nigeria. It's from a reputable law firm. It's from, it's from Polsonelli. It's from a lawyer at Polsonelli. And it says, you have an, an Uncle Jim who left you $2 million. Now you say, I don't, I don't have an Uncle Jim. I never knew an Uncle Jim. But again, you don't just throw that in the trash. Because of the magnitude of the claim, you've got to at least pick up the phone and call and try to understand, is this right? Is this a mistake? The claims of the gospel are of such a magnitude that they worthy, they're worthy of at least falsifying and saying, is it possible that this is true? Because if it, if it isn't true, then, then this isn't worth anything. That's what Paul is saying. Then forget about it. But if this is true, it changes everything. Jesus was the first one whose death did not take away all his meaning. In fact, his death gave new meaning to his life. Because he lives, so can I. And with a meaning that no suffering, no death, not even my own, can take away. So the resurrection means that death is not the end. Second, it also means that my fears are not in charge. You know, one of the big things that Rachel and I often talk about is the big question of when is the other shoe going to drop? Because we are in a season in God's providence that we're in a season that's really, really good. But of course, as human beings, we can never just enjoy that. Uh, we always wonder, and, and really we wonder rightly, when is it going to come crashing down? Because we know good things don't continue. We know that, that hardship inevitably comes in our lives. And deep down, we know two things. We know that good things do come to an end, and we also seem to know at the core of who we are that they shouldn't. That this shouldn't be the way things end. So how do we live in the face of that? And not be consumed by fear. Because there's so much we could fear, isn't there? When you look around at the world and the fragility of our lives, there's so much to be afraid of. I mean, freak accidents. I mean, how depressing and jarring was that nationwide insurance company ad during the Super Bowl, right? You're walking along and it's like, oh my gosh, the kids are, are is dead. But it touches on something in us, right? That these accidents happen. Cancer, job loss, dementia. I mean, so how do we live in the face of that kind of fragility and fear? Well, one approach is just to say, well, just don't think about it. But there, there are constant reminders of that, aren't there? I mean, apparently you can't even watch the Super Bowl and eat Doritos without being reminded of it. So this isn't really a viable way forward. Ignoring isn't the path to redeeming. Another approach is just to sort of live it up in the face of death, numbing the pain. And this is actually what, what Paul suggests uh, we do if, in fact, Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. If you were to keep reading in 1 Corinthians 15, you get to verse 32 where Paul writes, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But, but this is not the path to human flourishing, and it actually only leads to more pain. Because numbing is also not the path to redeeming. 
A third approach to this is sort of to take the approach of, well, just sort of keep calm and carry on. But this ultimately, if you, if you take that stance in life, that ultimately leaves you sort of aloof and unfeeling. This is actually the sort of, sort of stoicism or cynicism that you can, and, and many of you here are in these professions, that, that if you're a doctor or a first responder of some kind, or even a pastor or a social worker, others who, who regularly encounter suffering can resort to in order to cope with what they see every day in their work. But just sort of keeping a stiff upper lip is not the path to redeeming either. But Christianity offers something unique, a new way forward in the face of fear. Christianity offers a deeply hopeful realism. A hopeful realism. You see, Christianity is extremely realistic about how bad things really are. No uh, Christian who, who understands and reads the Bible and, and understands what's going on here should be under any delusions about how broken our world is. And yet, the gospel means that we are also unshakably hopeful, that we have an unshakable confidence that God is working to redeem and set to right the world. Uh, Wisconsin Public Radio recently reported on the research of some psychologists who were studying people who had gone through sort of extreme trauma. And what they discovered is that people who had been through significant moments of trauma in their life, things like losing a limb or cancer or other disasters, they actually weren't motivated or helped by kind of the silver linings theory. That, oh, well, I'm sure this is going to work out for good. Or, or, well, look at what happened, even though this was really bad. Well, here's kind of a silver lining. Trauma survivors reported that positive thinking wasn't all that helpful. A lot of people in that moment, one of the researchers says, in that moment of trauma, don't feel very positive. To try to force them to think positive, I think in some ways, in some sense, is to re-victimize them. So what actually did help them? Well, what actually helped these people who had experienced this kind of trauma was what researchers called grounded hope. And the author of the study explained grounded hope this way. This is a combination of a very realistic and brutally honest understanding of what's happening to you in the moment. Realism. Combined with a very brave, forward-pointing question, how can I build a better life on top of this? Hopefulness. And this is exactly what you find in the gospel and Christianity. A deeply hopeful realism. Christianity says your fears are real. It doesn't try to say they're not. There is real evil in the world, real things to fear, death, suffering, etc. Those things are real. The Bible doesn't deny that. Christianity validates those fears, calls them what they are. But Christianity also says that fear is not the final word, that death is not the end, that there is a real, unshakable hope that everything, everything we fear is being destroyed, including the greatest fear of all, death. I don't know about you, but that speaks to the deepest longings of my heart. I mean, so many of the stories that, that I love, that I just find myself drawn to, whether it's Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, these kinds of stories, they're all about the defeating of death, death being overcome. There are real things to fear in this life. 
And Jesus has defeated and is defeating every last one of them. The resurrection means that your fears are not in control. He lives. And so can you. You can live a life that's free. A life that's free from crippling fear. A life that's marked marked by a, a hopeful realism. And third, the resurrection also means that my failures are not the last word. My failures are not the last word. Because in life, beginning well is pretty easy. But finishing well is really hard. I'm going to turn 33 in May, and I'm not that old, but the longer that I go on in life, I realize keeping this up, living well, finishing well is really hard. So we love fresh starts. We love new beginnings, don't we? And I think part of that, we know how hard it is to finish well. And so we, we love when we have chances for a reset. And, and with spring, it kind of marks the, the reset, the, the refreshing of so many things, um, including the baseball season. And, uh, and I'm not a huge sport fan. Those of you who know me know that. But I do love baseball. And, uh, and with the new season of the Royals just about to begin, I mean, there's so much expectation and hope. Um, this is also a big year of expectation uh, if you're a Cubs fan. Um, first of all, if you are, I'm sorry. Um, but if you remember, Back to the Future 2, right? 2015 is the year that the Cubs are supposed to win it all. So we'll see if Marty McFly uh, was right. Um, we'll have to watch October. Um, I'm not that hopeful, but we'll, we'll see. Um, so in life, we can find meaning and place our hope in all sorts of things. But ultimately, it's the strength of what we are hoping in that matters most. So is it possible for us to find meaning, to build meaning in our life without God? I mean, sure, at one level, right? And we can, we can hope in tenuous things. And at times, those things can feel rich and deep and true. But as I've already said this morning, death, fears, they threaten that meaning, that hope. But there's something worse, actually, that that threatens hope in my life. Um, Because what threatens hope in my life, more than my death or or more than the things I fear, is is me. Because the the greatest threat to my hope is me. I I am why I, I will die. I am why I fear and if I try to build meaning in my life apart from God, it's not just that, that t- it's tenuous because the things that I hope in um, will, will end because I die or that there are things out in the world that I legitimately fear. It's tenuous because I, like you, like every human being, have this incredible ability to mess things up. The British author Francis Spufford articulates this so well. I, I, I love his style as a, as a Brit. He says... What we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident. Our passive role as agents of entropy. He says it's our active inclination to break stuff. And he says stuff here includes moods, promises, relationships we care about, our own well-being and other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. And he continues... You can get quite a long way through an adult life 
without having to acknowledge your own personal propensity to mess things up. Maybe even all the way through if you're someone who has a, highly, a high threshold of obliviousness or with the kind of disposition that registers sunshine even when a storm is howling all around. But he says for most of us, the point eventually arrives when at least for an hour or a day or a season, we find we have to take notice of our human propensity to mess things up, to let people down, to not follow through on our promises. Because here's the thing, as human beings, we are truly cruel as well as truly tender. Both of those things are true of us. We're truly loving as well as taking pleasure in wasting or breaking love. Every one of us fails, really every one of us. I mean, the simple example of this is, is keys. I mean, take something ubiquitous and as commonplace and simple as the keys that are in your pocket right now or in your purse, right? I mean, why do we have them? Because we don't trust people. We, we know from experience, we know ourselves, we know that we can't trust people. That's so why we have passcodes on our iPhones and, and passwords on our bank accounts. We, we know that the world is not as it's supposed to be, that we mess things up, that, that we're deeply broken. That's why you have keys in your pocket. Our own experience with ourselves tells us if there's a possibility of us doing something and we're not going to get caught, we're inclined to do it. And the language the Bible uses to talk about this fatal flaw in all of us is the, the language that Paul uses throughout this chapter, and it's what Jesus' death and resurrection fully and finally heals. Look at verse 3 again. He says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins for my sins, for your sins, everything that you have done or will do to mess up your life, that's why Jesus came. He came to set it right, to take what you've broken, what you will break, and put it back together, to take you out of the mess that you will or have created for yourself, and for him to stand in the place of chaos and rejection and abandonment instead of you. But, but here's the thing, it's not just that. Paul says in verse 22, for as in Adam, Adam the very first human, all die. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In Christ all of us shall be made alive if we place our trust and faith in him. He lives, so can you and so can I. And not just a life for heaven when we die, but life right now. A life that is filled with courage and meaning. A life of meaning that your fears, that your death, that not even your failures can take away. Jesus' life is more powerful than all those things. He proved it on a Sunday 2,000 years ago. And that's why I'm a Christian. If you've got to pin me down, say, Bill, why are you a Christian? It's because of 1 Corinthians 15. It's because of the resurrection. 
If he lives, then, then so can I. And the, the evidence of, of that is everywhere. It's in, it's in your tears at a funeral. It's in your fears. It's in your anxiety. It's in your knowledge that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's in the evidence that there's been a church that's proclaiming for the last 2,000 years that a man died on a cross and then came out three days later, later alive, never to die again. That's why I've given my life to Jesus, even though I've never seen him. He lives and his life has brought me back from the death once. Spiritually, he's been made me alive and he will do it again at the end of time. So do you have his life? Do you have his courage, his meaning? Can you have meaning in life without God? Yes? No. And you know it, don't you? I mean, even the things that give you the greatest joy, the most meaning, don't they still leave you longing? Our desires for love, for relationship, for meaning, our desires, are, they're too strong for this place, for this world, aren't they? A place where fear and death and our failures snuff out even the greatest things we do. Because I don't know about you, but I am longing for more. I love what C.S. Lewis describes in what I think is probably his best book. It's not one of his most well-known, but it's called Till We Have Faces. And in that book, one of the characters said this. He says, it was when I was happiest that I longed most. And because it was beautiful, it set me longing, always longing. Somewhere else, there must be more of it. It was when I was happiest that I longed the most. What gives you joy? What fills your days with meaning? There's more of it. There's so much more of it. Somewhere else, there is more of it. And the world that broke into ours the morning Jesus broke out of the tomb, that's where it's at. And it's been breaking in ever since. It, it's broken into my life. And that means that, that my death will not be my end. My fears are not in charge of me anymore. My failures do not have to be the last word in my life. Jesus lives, and so can I. And so can you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have changed everything when you raise Jesus from the dead.